In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Dearly beloved brethren, I am to preach to you the holiest and the greatest of fasts. And with what words can I more fitly begin than with those words of the Apostle in whom Christ spoke and which have just been read? Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. It is true that there are no times which are not rich with God's gifts. His grace doth ever give us an entry unto his mercy. Nevertheless, more especially at this time, doth it behoove that the minds of all men be earnestly stirred up to make progress in things spiritual, and to be nerved by a trust in God stronger than ever. For now the anniversary of that day on which we were redeemed is drawing near, and thereby moving us to work all godliness to the end that we may be able to celebrate with clean minds and bodies that mystery which exceeds all others, the mystery of the Lord's sufferings. It is with these words that that great and holy Pope and doctor of the church, Leo I, greeted his flock, no doubt a slightly larger flock, in Rome some 1,600 years ago. It was his sermon for the first Sunday of Lent. And yes, if we know our missiles very well, we can only marvel at the fact that the Mass that Pope Leo was celebrating back in the 5th century was precisely the same as the one that we shall be celebrating in just a few days for our first Sunday of Lent. This is one of several reasons why it is so profitable for us to make a Lenten pilgrimage, as we do this year, with the fathers of the Church. Fathers who have shown us the proper rule of belief because, above all, they have shared with us the same rule of prayer. To speak to you for 40 days about the fathers of the Church and their teachings for this time of Lent could hardly be called by any priest of the Catholic Church an original idea. It is simply an idea which I am trying to share with you this year, an idea which has been handed on to all of us. For it is Holy Mother Church who ordains that her clergy should read a homily from the Fathers on every single day of Lent. The passage from Leo the Great's homily, which I just quoted for you, is part of what will be read in the Divine Office at Matins this coming Sunday. For today's Mass, we hear from the Father, whom we shall hear from most of all throughout Lent, the great St. Augustine. We shall hear especially from all the great Latin doctors of the Church throughout these 40 days, Augustine Ambrose, Gregory, St. Jerome, 
along with several others. It is my intention, however, to draw into our consideration even more fathers of the Church as we make our way through these 40 days of wanderings seeking the truth of Christ. It is my hope that the teaching that we will share with you throughout these 40 days will aid in some other considerations which we made several years ago and will serve as a good reminder. A few years ago, the theme for our Lenten sermons was the proper interpretation of the scriptures which we encounter on each day of Lent. For each day of Lent has a mass that is proper to it, which is why they are so rich in sermons from the fathers. Every time we encounter God's word at Holy Mass, we can always consider four things. First, we consider the literal sense of the scriptures. This is often expounded to us by the fathers. Indeed, it is today. The homily of St. Augustine for today's gospel about the centurion is very much concerned with the literal sense. He is concerned especially with establishing that St. Matthew and St. Luke describe precisely the same historical event, despite the fact that they use different wording. The literal sense is something, then, that we will encounter often in the teachings of the Fathers. But then we encounter also the spiritual sense. And there are three spiritual senses. The allegorical, the moral, and the anagogical. We are all more or less familiar with the term allegory. and Indeed, this is what we talked to you about a few years ago. We must understand that when we use the term allegory here, unlike in profane literature, it has a very specific purpose. Our master in theology, St. Thomas Aquinas, tells us that whatever we may find hidden behind the literal sense in the scriptures could never be an absolutely secret knowledge that only the very erudite could discover. No, it is always there to support something that is clearly taught in the literal sense somewhere else in divine revelation. There we see the clear limits of allegorical interpretation of the scriptures. It is no fanciful musing over what secondary meaning could be found in a passage. No, it asks a very specific question. In any passage, and especially in all the Old Testament lessons which we have throughout Lent, the question is, where in this passage, especially in the Old Testament, where do I find Christ? For we are told by our Savior himself that every page of the Old Testament speaks of him. Where then is Christ in this passage? And when we ask where is Christ, as good Catholics, we know we are always asking as well, where is the church? Where are his sacraments? Christ and his church are one. Christ and his sacraments are one. When the Old Testament prophesies the coming of a particular sacrament, it is the same as though it were prophesying the coming of our Savior himself. Or 
prophecy and allegory concerning the church also speaks just as well of Christ himself. This is a sense which is very clearly expanded to us by the fathers, and indeed when we know that the fathers teach us a clear allegorical interpretation of a passage, we may be sure that it is a safe and a sure reading of that passage. As for the moral interpretation, which we encounter very often, and which certain fathers prefer to expound upon, the question here is when we read a passage, we ask, where is my soul in this passage? How does this passage concern my soul and where it is headed, especially based on its actions in this life? Finally, then, there is the anagogical passage, the anagogical interpretation, which often can easily be paralleled with the allegorical. And the question here is, where is eternity in this passage? Where is our final end, if it is to be found specifically in a certain passage? One final thing I would like to share with you, we do try to keep these sermons every day to a, a certain length, or rather to a certain short. And so I do answer one other question, which may be on your minds. What does it mean to bring the fathers with us along our Lenten journey? Who exactly are these fathers? We've already heard these names, St. Leo, St. Augustine, St. Jerome, St. Ambrose, St. Gregory. These are names which we shall encounter very often, for they are the preferred authors, which the Church quotes during these 40 days. But they are the most illustrious of many fathers. And indeed, there I have cited only fathers of the West, where there are great and illustrious fathers and doctors to be found in the Eastern Church as well, which the Church also delights in, in citing. We speak of the age of the fathers to distinguish it from the age which came afterwards, the age of theology. And of course, for those who lived in those times, there was no clear break. We cannot always clearly draw a break ourselves when we look through history. There are certain authors who will write later in time who write just in the same manner as the early fathers, whereas there are also some fathers who are clearly pioneers in the realm of theology. Nevertheless, we find that it is useful to speak of this category of learning, which is the church fathers, these authors whom the church prefers to quote for us throughout Lent. The Church Fathers, according to general teaching, are all those Christian writers who penned their thoughts in the seven or eight centuries following the Age of Revelation. That is, a revelation closed with the death of the last apostle at the close of the first century. And by that time, by the end of the first century, there were already authors who had become Christian and who were writing books, writing works, and letters themselves. The work of the earliest fathers was especially that of defending the faith before the pagans, or it concerned even those who were anxious to hand on to the next generation the teachings of the apostles that had been part of sacred tradition because some of those authors knew the apostles themselves. They are thus very precious writings for us, and very invigorating to read. 
This is, in general, how writings were done in those very first generations after the apostles, coinciding, of course, with the age of martyrs. This lasted until the beginning of the fourth century. Already then, as the age of martyrs was drawing to a close, we see that the minds of Christian men were maturing and they were beginning to expound the faith in a more systematic manner. We arrived then at the fourth century, which going into the fifth century is considered the golden age of the fathers. And these are the fathers whom the church quotes most often, especially in her divine office and throughout Lent. The end of the age of martyrs was followed immediately by a crisis of faith in the church. The need to defend the faith now against new and bold heresies. The first of all, the worst of all, being the heresy of Arianism, denying the divinity of Christ. These first fathers of the Golden Age, then, were concerned especially with defending the dogma of the Trinity and of the Incarnation, that there was one God and three divine persons, and that the second divine person became true man. This would occupy the writings of the fathers throughout this time, whether they were writing specifically on those theological subjects or if they were commenting the scriptures. They would often make reference to these dogmas. By the close of the 5th century, it seemed that the victory had been won with regarding these particular dogmas. The writings of the fathers then would continue to build on those subjects. And we find the faith flowering during that time, such that we are astonished to find that those men who lived so long ago thought and believed in precisely the same manner as we did, though often with a certain youthfulness in their manner of expression. It is, as our Lord says, the grain of mustard seed. We consider the large tree under which we repose today as we go back in time, we find that tree younger and younger. In the time of the fathers, it is but a shrub, but it is clearly the same tree. It is these men whom the Holy Mother Church wishes to be our veritable guides throughout our Lenten pilgrimage. And so as we offer explanations of the lessons we find at Holy Mass every day, we will draw this year especially on quotations from the fathers, as I said, drawing in the ones whom the Church chooses par excellence day after day, but drawing in lessons as well from, from many other fathers whom the Church holds in very high regard. As I said, they are not to be separated from us by some clear break in time, although it is useful to distinguish that age of the fathers from the ages which followed. There is, in fact, only a continuity. Our great master of the age of theology, that is, St. Thomas Aquinas, certainly saw no such break. For him, the whole of divine revelation, whether contained in the Holy Scriptures themselves or in sacred tradition as handed down to us by the fathers, all was a perfectly woven whole from which we could draw this infinite treasure to draw from at any time in support of theological arguments. This is what we will strive to do now throughout Lent, to draw for you lessons which will apply especially to the amendment of your lives, the deepening 
of your faith, so that, as St. Leo tells us, we may emerge from our Lenten pilgrimage, able to celebrate with clean minds and bodies that mystery which exceeds all others, the mystery of our Lord's passion and resurrection. Amen.